Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Today's quote comes from the parable of the prodigal son, which is found in Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 21. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said unto his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. For those of you who've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, you might remember an interview I did with Pastor Chris Hoke, who is the senior pastor at Underground Ministries located up in Skagit, Washington. That interview was about a year ago. It was episode three. And in that discussion, we talked about a couple of things. One was about the work that the ministry was doing to help the re-entry of prisoners, men and women, back into society and the challenges that come along with that. And the other part, we talked about the business of running a charitable organization and the need and benefit of those who contribute on a regular basis to organizations to fund their work, because then it allows people like this pastor to do the work he's meant to do rather than having to spend so much time trying to bring in more money. Today's guest is a product and the result of that kind of a commitment to a charitable organization who's gone through underground ministries and finds himself, as he would say, healed and basically going out and blessing the community he once destroyed. His name is Alex Sanchez, and to quote Pastor Hoke on the impact Alex has had on the community and particularly underground ministries, he says, Alex has blown away Skagit community members since he joined our staff a year and a half ago. Using his studies in human services from Skagit Valley College, Alex has taken our holistic reentry work among gang members to new levels. He has integrated laser tattoo removal, jail visitation, pre-release planning, housing coordination. He's helped dozens of individuals get their driver's license, some for the very first time in their life. He's helped those uh, many to enroll in college for themselves. He's also partnered with local legal aid organizations to help them work with these individuals to manage the debt that they may have as they're emerging out of incarceration. And he's further developed their underground employment program to set more men and women into sustainable local careers. So it's my pleasure today to welcome, coming to us from Skagit, Washington, and Underground Ministries, my friend Alex Sanchez. Alex, welcome to Upthinking Finance. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I guess the best place to start is the beginning. I mean, maybe talk about your background growing up and how you ended up finding yourself, you know, incarcerated, and then we'll we'll take it from there. Yeah, I mean, we'll as young as I can remember, there's been a lot of destruction in my life. I mean, even in the whole family, I grew up in a gang-affected family. Drugs was a normal. Gangbanging was a normal. I experienced a lot of racism growing up. So, I mean, as I remember my anger stemmed from not having a father. Like, my father died when I was two years old. And so, being the youngest out of five siblings, I just had this anger. I hated that man. I hated somebody who was no longer here, who I didn't even get to meet. And so with that aggression fueled by the gang culture, and then as soon as I got old enough to start doing drugs, started my addiction, I was just, I just became a violent person. I didn't want to hurt. I didn't want to feel nothing. So I'd rather inflict pain on others. And unfortunately that led me to incarceration in and out of juvenile hall, in and out of the county jail. 
went to prison for 15 months, got released. I was only out for four months and caught a 10 year prison sentence. Like it was it was that easy for me to get lost in the system again. Mind you, I grew up experiencing a lot of racism. So like in grade school, in middle school, when I was supposed to have role models or people who were looking out for me, I wasn't being accepted or I wasn't being heard. I was just another Mexican kid from the block. So, I mean, I went out to prison for 10 years. Six of those 10 years was done in solitary confinement because I didn't stop once I was in there. Once I was in there, I continued on my destructive path. And I think about eight years into my prison sentence, I was sitting in solitary confinement and I knew what I was doing wasn't going to lead me anywhere productive. I was either going to getting killed or end up with a life sentence. How old were you, Alex? Can I ask? When I got incarcerated? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when all this stuff was going on, I mean, how old were you? The prison sentence part? Yeah, was, yeah. The 10-year sentence. That's, yeah. I was 20, about to be 21. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I was 20, but I literally felt like I was in my 30s. Like I, I had already lived a long life of just beating myself down, not loving myself, destroying everything around me, destroying my family. Like I had a hand in destroying this community where I live. And that's why I take so much to this work that I'm doing, because now I get a chance to build it up, build my family and my kids. So, and I'm just curious, I mean, how hard you mentioned growing up and dealing with all the racism and not having a dad. I mean, I guess the question is, is it pretty much difficult to avoid kind of falling into the trap that you fell in? I mean, it sounds like it's a real uphill battle given all those kind of headwinds. Is that a fair way to put it? I mean, growing up, just in that time, just feeling accepted, like any child wants to feel accepted. So when you're not getting accepted by the community, by society, like you're going to gravitate towards what accepts you. And what accepted me was gang culture that was already in my family, a bunch of friends growing up. I, I grew up in immigrant camp where people used to migrate to come stay there and do field work in the agriculture fields. And so there was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of racism, a lot of like, hey, like you're not good enough to do this or you're not good enough to join sports because you're not going to amount to anything anyways. And so I got labeled at a very young age like, hey, he's one of them or he's going to grow up to amount to nothing. So I was like, all right, well, label me at a young age. I'm going to be what you say I am but I'm going to take it to another level. I'm going to be the worst kind. Wow. So you're sitting in prison and you start realizing that you're headed down the, the path that's not going to end well. I mean, did you end up reaching out for help or I mean, where did that kind of take you? Well, it started, I think when I went to prison, my son was two years old. I didn't see him for the first time until he was about seven years old. And that was because I kept getting myself into situations while I was in prison. Mind you, I was a very violent person catching a lot of assaults. And my mom, when I left to prison, my mom, so throughout my journey of destruction, my mom was always there for me. Not once did she say, hey, you can't come to my house. Like, if you need somewhere to stay, we're here for you. That's Mexican culture. Like, nobody gets left behind. But I was just too lost in my addiction, and I was in a pretty sight, so I wouldn't come around. So when I went to prison, my mom could dance, cook, clean, drive, work. About six years into my prison sentence, I got my first visit from her and she came in on a walker. She could no longer do any of those things. And not only that, the guards didn't want her to bring her walker to me. So they took it from her. And my stepdad had to help her do the walk from the front door to me. That broke my heart. That broke my heart. And I almost lost it. And I was like, all right, so if I lose it right now, I'm probably never going to get out of this place or I can do what's right and show my mom that she'd have a good son. And so... When I was about two years out, I reached out to Chris Oak and 
Underground Ministries at the time was a new thing. I met Chris Hulk 18 years ago in the county jail, about 18, 17 years ago. It was my first time in, in the adult jail. And he came in with his guitar and he would lead a Bible study and sing. And I had a lot of trust issues, especially towards white people, man. I hate to say it, but no, I get it. Something told me to trust this guy. It's like, and so I opened up to him and we started a friendship and we had our ups and downs. He took me in when I was in my addiction. He's written me letters and I pretty much told him to F off. Like, don't write me. Leave me alone. I don't want to hear nothing you have to say. Like, you're just trying to change me. And so we had this up and down relationship. But throughout the ups and downs and throughout me pushing him away, he never abandoned me. He was always there. He's like, all right, man. He's like, I just want to love you. That's it. And so when I decided to change, there was two role models in my life. One was Chris, who I knew he was going to accept me. He was going to be there. And my older brother, Hanato, who I've looked up to since I was younger, he was pretty much my dad. I looked at him as my dad and he had just made some important decisions in his life and changed his life around. So let me follow in those footsteps and let me reach out. I reached out to Chris and he said, hey, do you remember I sent you a form to start on your reentry? Do you still have that form? And I told him, honestly, Chris, like, Every time he sent me that form, I threw it away. I didn't want nothing to do with that. I had it all figured out, or so to say, in my head. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have it figured out. So he sent me a reentry form called Stones and Layers. And the Stones and Layers is basically your internal and external barriers that are going to help you on your reentry journey as soon as you get out. So you name those and you list those. So external barriers being everything from driver's license, child support, court debt, LFOs, employment, like everything. And then internal barriers will be your mental health. What's going on here? What's going on here? Your addiction, what kind of identity you're holding on to. And so I filled it out. It was the scariest form I had ever filled out in my life. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to accomplish any of this. Like, I'd rather just keep gangbanging. Like, that's easy. That came easy. Using these fists came easy. There's something to be said when you put something in writing. It's up here in your brain, but when you put it in writing, all of a sudden it's real, man. I get it. It must have looked just like an impossible task. It was scary. Like, even the word change. Like, I wasn't real receptive to the word change. Like, I didn't agree with that. Because I know deep down inside, I always had a good heart. I was always down for my family. I was always there to help even my homies, the younger ones that were there. I was always like a big brother to them. Like, I didn't like the word change. Like, whenever somebody would say, hey, you need to change, you need to change. I'd be like, phew, change. I'm not going to change who I am. I didn't want to change because deep down inside, I didn't want to change who I really was. So kind of substituted the word for heal. How about I heal instead? And so I started healing. I started addressing what was inside of me. I started addressing what was who I was and what I could become and let go of the machismo stuff. So, okay. And just to kind of get the timeline up here. So you're reaching out to Chris. What about you said two years in? So you're starting to do some of this work or did you know that your sentence was coming to an end or is that okay to ask? Yeah, yeah, no, of course. Yeah. My sentence was coming to an end and I think that was scary in itself. I was just going to ask you, I mean, so you have this epiphany with your mom, you see that and you have kind of, to me, that's like a defining moment in life that hopefully we all get at one point or another. And then you're faced with this list of all these things you got to do, knowing you're going to be thrown back into the world. I mean, that's got to be pretty frightening. The fear of going back to where you were and kind of having this sort of glimpse of where you want to go and seeing this gap, this gulf of between here and there. That's kind of where you were. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. Like I just, just the thought of being released again, after doing so much solitary confinement too, like even to this day, like I still have anxiety. Like I can't be in a big group of people without feeling some kind of 
pressure, anxiety, certain things stayed with me. Like when I go to a restaurant with my wife and the kids, like I got to sit with my back against something. I can't have an open space behind my back. I mean, right here, I feel comfortable because it's my work area. But I mean, just getting released from prison, like it was scary because I knew myself. I knew how destructive I can be, how violent I could get and how destructive I can be to myself. And I didn't have a scale that said, Alex is going to mess up a little bit and do good. No, when I messed up, I messed up all the way. I went from zero to 100 fast. I never cared about life, man, until something clicked inside me. Like, we only live this life once and I'd be damned if I just wasted away. That's wisdom, man. So you get out. I mean, where do you start? As a former, like as a recovering alcoholic myself, I mean, getting over addiction, that's a whole deal unto itself without all this other stuff. So was there sort of a pecking order or was it a matter? of how did all that work for you once you started to move ahead? Once I did my re-entry plan and I seen it on paper, like you said, once you put it on paper, it's real. It's like, all right, I need to go through with this. I knew I had to release myself from other things, not just from prison. I had to be real with myself and hold myself accountable. I need to release from prison. First and foremost, I need to release myself from my drug addiction, even though it had been years since I used former meth addict, former heroin addict. Like, and then I needed to put a barrier in space between me and my old lifestyle. Or so to say, I had a cut contact with certain friends from my past who weren't moving in the same direction that I was moving. I wanted something out of life. And so I needed to release myself from those three things. And then upon my release, just took it slow, took care of myself, a lot of self-help and just started working on my re-entry one step at a time. Chris helped me with my re-entry. I can give you a little insight about what that's like, how I help others with their re-entry. First things first is I got my driver's license. 31 years old, first time in my life having my driver's license. I didn't think that was ever going to happen. That felt great. As soon as I got my driver's license, I didn't feel like I had to look over my shoulder. That's the number one thing that sends a guy or men or women back to prison is not having their driver's license. Because as soon as they start driving without a driver's license in their head, they're already breaking one rule. What is it to break another one? Getting your driver's license is vital. Got my driver's license, immediately enrolled into the Sketch Valley College, into the human service program. And as soon as I started taking those courses, whether it be motivational interviewing, mediation, intro to counseling, like I knew that education was for me. I just started hitting those books. I got employed after about a month. I gave myself some time to just settle in. And I surrounded myself by family. I surrounded myself by the things that I missed the most while I was away. And so I started on my reentry and just stuck to it. And anybody from my past that reached out to me, whether I used to do drugs with them or other things with them, I respectfully told them to just to back off, just respectfully like, hey, you're not invited to my life no more. Was that hard to do? It was hard, but it came easy because the number one person that I cared about from my past, who was also from the same neighborhood and the same gang that I was from, is my brother. He had already changed his life. So I had everything I wanted. My kid was in my life. My siblings are in my life. I got great support around me. I'm not really missing. Some of my younger friends that really truly meant a lot to me passed away while I was in prison. So it made it a little bit easier. Like, who am I really letting down? And I'm a grown man. I can make my own decisions. And people respected that. I mean, they respected what you were doing. Does that, I mean, you didn't get any pushback from people from the past? Yeah. I mean, for the most part, yeah, people respect it. We have some there to be some that would get in their feelings or would have something to say. But I mean, honestly, they, you can also tell in other aspects that they have some growing to do. So so it sounds like things changed pretty quickly, but I'm guessing there was some, Chris had described the challenges for people reentering back into society. And there's a lot of the world we live in. If somebody has a felony or a prison record, I mean, it's a real tough deal to have on a resume, so to speak. What were some of the things that you really found 
tested, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, I don't mean to, but were there points where you felt like, man, am I ever going to get through this? Did you run into those walls here and there along the way as you were healing and going through this process? Can I say something? Please. So I now run the reentry program here at Underground Ministries. And what Chris did with me, I do with about 60 to 70 men and women. And and I'm going to tell you what I tell them. I'm going to be working on my reentry the rest of my life. I'm going to be working on myself the rest of my life. Because life isn't easy. Life is hard, and especially being formerly incarcerated. Like I still have vivid dreams where I'm incarcerated. Every other day I have those dreams. I still have vivid dreams where I'm using. I wake up and I feel high. I haven't touched a drug in 14 years. I think the biggest barrier, the biggest challenge for me when I first got out was being isolated in my own thoughts. Alone with your brain. Yeah, that can be a dangerous place to be. Yeah, alone with your brain and like boredom too. And as soon as something came up that really stressed me out, like how to pay a phone bill, anything like that to me was new. What do you mean I got to learn how to pay a bill online? No, I'd rather go drink. I'd rather go do something else. That's what my mind was telling me. But with some coaching, with some help, got it all figured out. And even to this day, I got my own place with my wife and we now have a blended family. So I got five kids at home. She takes care of the bills. You do that part and I'll do the other stuff. I'll provide. (laughs) I got to do certain things. So let me ask you this. Did you ever have during this process? I mean, I get what you're saying about it's, it's a lifelong deal. That makes complete sense to me. In the early part of getting back in into society, was there ever a point where you just felt like maybe... You had some self-doubt or just you felt that, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. Is that a fair thing to ask? Yeah. I mean, even to this day, I still have like, do I deserve where I'm at in life? I heard so many people, do I deserve this? Is this just a dream? I'm waiting for the other shooters to drop. Yeah. I got 11 felonies on my record. My life out here could be pulled from under me with one little mistake. That stays in the back of my head. But I know that I'm going to keep fighting for what I'm doing, keep fighting for myself. But yeah, those thoughts are always there. So we have a mutual friend. We'll just use his first name, Dan. And was it a, last year or a couple of years ago, you went on that retreat up into the Utah mountains? And was that a couple of years ago? Am I right? 2019. Okay. I've been home four years. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm a little off in the time. You know what it is? The last three years with the COVID and all that, it's like a blur, man. It's only been a yeah. few years, but it feels like a lifetime. Dan and I are good friends and I know you know him. How did that impact you at all? Was there some things you just took away from that that really changed you, propelled you? or I had never been on a hike before. I know Chris, once during my addiction years ago, Chris took me to a park and kind of taught me how to throw around the fly fishing rod, but I had never casted it into water or anything like that. So going out there to the wilderness, when I say wilderness, to me, that was wilderness. The hour long hikes in the scorching heat, wearing a backpack with gear, that to me was living life. Like I had never done anything like that. And it also tested me because I mean, with my anxiety at times in my head, I'm like, all right, well, I'm not going to make it back home to my home state. Like I'm going to be stuck out here. And <laughs> like my mind would just tell me, but it was just an experience like no other. Just the brotherhood that we had there sharing meals together, being out in the wilderness, fly fishing, and then looking over, seeing the smile on other people's faces, other gentlemen that came with us that are formerly incarcerated, like just seeing that. Do you still stay in touch with any of those guys? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I now help them. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's great. So gosh, there's so many directions I want to go, but I guess, well, let me ask you this. You just graduated college, right? Just like a month ago. I just graduated June 19th. I got my associates in applied science and human services, emphasis on generalist. Very exciting. That I never thought that was going to happen. I got to wear a cap and gown. Mom got to see me. Mom also got to see me get married. I had a big wedding. So I've hit a couple milestones since I've been out. 
And I'm going to take about a year off and then go get my bachelor's. I also helped create a, a group within Underground Ministries called Underground Healing. And a lot of the men and women that we've worked on their reentry, they come to the group. And I teach curriculum like on mental health, substance abuse disorder, everything from mental health to toxic relationships. Like we're open, we talk about it, we help each other and then provide a dinner for them. And uh, it's great. Here's a question. I don't know if this is too personal, but I know at some point, you know, I'm listening to you talk and while I don't have the same background, I do know what it is to live in a certain way and then find myself married, running a business, living life, being a part of life. And where's God in all this for you? Can I ask you that? Because it just seems to me, I'm listening to you, and there's a point where all the success you're having and all these accomplishments for a guy that was locked up and, like you said, and solitary, which most people in life will never know what that's like. Can I ask you that? Or is that too personal? No, I'm fine with that. God is in my life. Is it 100%? No, but that's a relationship that I'm building between me and my higher power. I believe, I know that I could learn more and I know that I got a long ways to go. But yeah, like I said, towards the end during my incarceration, when something clicked inside of me and I felt like I needed to go down a different path and really be there for my family, I knew that there were some feelings that I was feeling that there was God was behind. I was feeling some things that I had never felt in my life. Like, all right, I need to. I need to make some decisions. I need to make them quick. Man, that's like the hero's journey because you get that kind of a contact and you get that moment and ultimately you still have a choice. You still have a choice. Go back this way or take this leap of faith and move ahead. And it's just, it's exciting because of all the people you're helping. So if you can, I mean, maybe just share with people the working with how working with 60, 70 people, like you said, is helping you, but also how that works. Because I have to think somebody, you're like the beacon of hope, man. I mean, if somebody like me goes in and starts trying to talk to people about things I don't know about, but when you have somebody who's been there and has had those experiences, it can really speak to the just the core bottom line stuff that people feel, fears, all of it. I have to imagine you're really, really good at what you're doing for people. I mean, do they listen to you? So Chris said that too one time. He said, you're good at what you do. And I had to correct them. I'm not good at what I do. I love what I do. I really feel it in my heart. And it keeps me grounded. And yeah, so I get to work with these. So Skagit Valley, I grew up here. So who are the people that I'm working with? People that I grew up with, family members, old friends. There's already a connection there. And if there's not a connection there, I build this relationship with them to where it's real. They could trust me. I'm here for them. If somebody comes down, I'm working on them with their reentry and, and they fall into addiction. And believe me, I can read all the signs. I don't sit here and say, oh, whatever. No, I will look for them. Like, nope, we're not doing that. Let's go have some dinner instead. Let's talk about this. How can I help you? How can we be here for you? You're not alone. Because I know I couldn't do it alone. Those people that I, that I have in my life. How old is your son now? Can I ask you? My oldest is 16. Okay. He's uh, in honor society, the high school. Right on. He's had straight A's since first grade. Wow. Yeah, never dropped below that. Yeah, he's 16. Then my daughter's going to be 15. My other son's going to be 13. I got a son turning eight tomorrow. How do you like being a dad? How's that feel? That's what tests me the most. <laughs> That's the hardest part of my reentry, <laughs> especially with my daughter. She's stuck in the middle. She's the only girl. So, I mean, kids are real. I don't want to say brutal. They're real blunt. They're really going to tell you what it is, and you got to respect it and accept it. I remember when I first came home, my oldest son, AJ, I invited him to a birthday party that I got invited to. And he says, yeah, I'll go, but what's the itinerary? I was like, the what? <laughs> yeah, the itinerary. I said, let me call you back. And I had to go look it up. 
I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, when's cake going to happen? When's this going to happen? And I was just like, oh, man, I got a lot of catching up to do. Like, I thought I knew it all. That's great. It's good being a dad, man. That's what my life is about right now is being a father. I didn't have that father. Leaving my son when I went to prison, him being two years old, I wasn't a father. I couldn't be a father from prison. That's got to be, I think, we all hope I did have a dad in the home. And there were certainly some pauses, but there were also stuff that... I certainly, as a dad, I'm glad I'm not bringing into my home. So I think there's got to be some satisfaction for you being there and just filling that role, breaking that cycle. I don't know. I just, I think that's just good to hear. My normal was different from others. And I could tell from a young age, like, all right, I'm different. My lifestyle is different. I'm living different. Life's going to be different for me. I knew that at a young age. I remember in middle school, I got asked one time what I wanted to be when I grew up. And my immediate answer was, I want to go to prison. I want to be like my older cousins. That was the goal. To me, that was the belt. Like, let's go. That's where we're going. And I made it a reality quick. So let me ask you this. If you're speaking as a, I'll say an employee, that's okay, with underground, what do you say to people who support the organization or who are listening to this that maybe would consider that? What would you say as a person who's been on both sides of the wall, so to speak? Can you clarify a little bit? As I shared with you when we first spoke through Dan, I got involved with Underground Ministries from a financial perspective. Gosh, it's probably been 10 years now, I think. I don't really keep track. You know, we just got you guys on a schedule and we do every month and it's been great. But what do you say to people who don't see the day-to-day or maybe aren't as, that support you guys, but aren't necessarily as involved, maybe aren't as connected? or people that would want to, what would you say to them? Let them know how their contributions are helping you guys. Maybe the question is, I'm sorry, habit of rambling on to get to a point. But let me ask you, maybe this is the answer to the question. Is there like a success story that you personally have had working with somebody that just lets you know, man, we're making a difference on this earth. We are literally saving souls, however you want to categorize it. No, of course, there's a lot of success stories. As far as those who are generously giving, like it's making the difference. Without the donations, the work wouldn't go on and I wouldn't be employed. I wouldn't have my job here. I have a young lady who's home from prison. She's been home about two years. She came home on graduated reentry GRE, meaning she's out of prison, but she got let out early. So she's on an ankle monitor, made things a little bit harder, but... She overcame that, doing some tattoo removal on her face. She's got a bunch of tattoos. She is now employed at the college. She helps with reentry at the college. She's very connected. And this was a person who a lot of people thought was not going to make it. Like, I would hear people say, like, we're just waiting for that one to F up. And she's just blooming. She's happy. She's got a smile on her face. She's real supportive. We'll call her C for now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's great. So what's the plan if I were to ask you to say, okay, where do you kind of see yourself? I mean, you're still a young guy. What's the three to five year plan? I mean, you seem like a person that really has some vision and I'm just kind of curious. I would love to stay here. I mean, once again, of course, like my position depends on funding. And if we we don't have the funding, I can't stay here. But my hope is to stay here and go on and get my bachelor's at the same time. And I have a voice that's able to reach others. So I want to train somebody possibly to do the reentry part. I want to move more into a, like a counseling role. I'm just here. I'm just here to love the community, love the people that I've seen hurt their whole lives and build a table where those who have been oppressed their whole lives can come eat. Man, that's the parable of the wedding feast, man. Everybody's got a place at that table. That's what's so beautiful about this work, because I'm just from an outside observer, but you think about different groups of people in society that are really marginalized or cast out. And 
Anybody that's in prison system, I mean, that's got to be the top of the list. It's hard to soften people's hearts. It's just, just the reality of it. And you lived it, obviously. But that's also the most Christ-like thing I think you just shared is exactly that, is everybody, you say everybody, we have this life, we all have this life, and you get it once. And my understanding of God is everybody's welcome. He loves all of us. None of us are perfect, whether it's obvious from the outside in circumstances or those people that are just as messed, you know, having the same struggles, you just don't see it every day. We all have a place, so you're doing good work, brother. I just really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything you'd like to add just to your message or anybody who's listening? And I will say that the listeners kind of cross the Atlantic. I've got a bit of a contingent building up in Europe, so just anything you'd like to share as a kind of final sign-off here? I mean, off the top of my head, I just re-entry is important. Creating those relationships is important. And when somebody comes home from prison, don't just give them resources and walk away. Like walk this walk with them, give them a chance, introduce them to community, get connected and just love them. First and foremost, remember, like we're not here to try to solve problems. Like we don't fix trauma. We address it. Address those things. Address those things that are going on within them. I want to ask you a question. Please. (laughs) So I'm a big teddy bear now. So I ask these questions. What does love mean to you? I think it's just accepting, it's seeing the humanity in people. I think it's recognizing that everybody, every man and woman ultimately is a child of God and realizing that everybody's got a path. It's too easy to label people and put them in a box and not honor the fact that every single one of us has walked a, a journey that's unique from the other one. And that's how we're all like, honestly, I guess that there's acknowledging that there's this connection. We all have this connection. Like, listen to you. To me, your success in some way feels like a success for me somehow. I don't know how to explain it. It's got nothing to do with yeah. me being involved with the extent we have kind of here with underground, but just more that humanity wins. I guess that's what it is. Humanity wins, man. And that's love is seeing that and appreciating it. And I think allowing people the chance. I think that's what it is for me. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Empowering those who have been oppressed by the system. Yeah. And I guess maybe I'll ask you, and you may have already answered this. And I think just you sitting there having this conversation with me answers the question, but what do you say to the person? And I'll admitted, Alex, until I really got to know Chris and even talking to Dan about these retreats and the hunting, the trips. And I was probably like a lot of people. It's like, you're afraid. Oh, this person's been in prison. They're never going to change. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but I'm sure, you know, that's not like some big revelation. And until you see people as people, until like you put a name, what would you say to that person who's got that reluctance? How do you maybe get them to open their mind a little bit? I mean, just before you go judge somebody else, just ask yourself, like, have you made mistakes? Are you perfect? So put yourself in that person's shoes and where they come from. Think about where they come from, how they grew up. Something somewhere along the line, something effed up has happened in their life or in their head has caused them to do that. And especially with addiction, like addiction, like that's a tough one. I turned into a whole different person with that. And it fueled my aggression and violence. Like it's not what I wanted to do. Like I never wanted to be addicted. I never wanted to gangbang. It just happened. I couldn't break free from it. Just give somebody a chance and show them love. If you show somebody a different side, like kind of outcast them or give them dirty looks or treat them like they're dirt, of course, they're going to react and respond a certain way. Of course, they're going to keep giving up on themselves. But if you show somebody love and you say, hey, I see you, that's going to go a long ways. Like somebody seen me for who I was for a very long time. And I respect that. So now I get to see others for who they are. And I just be that lighthouse, man, to keep shining the light into other people's hearts. No, man, that's a gift. 
being able to see people and see them as fellow human beings and see. And I learned that in my life a lot later. I'm almost 60, a lot later than you have. And so it's a blessing for you. But yeah, once you start to see people beyond just the outside stuff and really see them as fellow humans, a lot of good can come from that. Listen, man, congratulations on your success. And I'm just really appreciate the time. And I just want to thank you for joining me on Upthinking Finance, Alex. I appreciate it. Yeah. Can I say something on the success part? Real Please. Quick? Like, to me, my success was me loving myself. That's what I consider my success. Everything else that I've been able to accomplish after that was just part of me living life. Amen. Me graduating college, me landing this reentry job here, me getting married and all that. Like, that's just a part of me living my life. But the only success that I see is me loving myself. The rest of that stuff, you allow yourself to be successful and things can happen. Now I get it. Hey, appreciate the time, brother. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.